Good morning. So lovely to be here. This is my first Sunday back since we emerged from lockdown. And it's so lovely to see everyone in person, isn't it? I think we're going to be celebrating for a while. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so my name's Viv. I'm the assistant minister here at St Mark's. This morning, I want to start by telling you a story about an amazing Aussie Paralympian. There were heaps of um, really inspiring stories about these athletes who competed in the Tokyo Paralympic Games this year, weren't there? So I want to tell you about um, Lauren Parker. I don't know if you've heard about her story. So she was a professional triathlete, uh, but days before a really big race, uh, while she was training, she had a high-speed cycling accident um, that left her paralysed from the waist down. And she she was told that she would only have a 0 to 1% chance of being able to walk ever again. Four months after her accident, while she was in hospital, um, she heard about paratriathlon, and from that she regained her dreams of being able to compete in the sport that she loved. And she describes it as a moment that gave her hope for her future, a hope that to her was basically a lifesaver. Two months after that, she discharged herself from rehab and began a serious, focused training regime in the hope of qualifying for the 2018 Commonwealth Games. And within three months of coming out of rehab, Lauren raced her first paratriathlon. And from that race, I think it was that race, she qualified for the Commonwealth Games. So she competed in the Commonwealth Games only 11 months after her accident. Now, I'm no athlete and I absolutely hate running, so I can, I can only imagine how gruelling and how difficult her preparation would have been at the time. So Lauren, she competed in the Tokyo Paralympics recently and she won a silver medal. And, and this is what her training and preparation involved in the lead-up to that. Five swimming sessions a week, doing up to four and a half k's. Five bike sessions a week, doing, get this, 70 to 80 k's per session. Five wheelchair runs a week. Out on top of that, a couple of gym sessions. And all, um, all that with only the use of half of her body. Um, we can, you know, she would have been on a strict, really healthy diet and obviously she had such incredible focus and discipline and determination. I mean, that's extreme, right? That's intense. These kind of athletes take their sport and their preparation so, so seriously to achieve their dreams. They have set themselves apart for an extraordinary athletic life. For them... I guess their preparation is absolutely everything. I wonder, what's the biggest thing that you've had to prepare for? Maybe like Lauren, you can relate to athletic preparation for something, even like a triathlon. I know Courtney was getting into that. (laughs) Um, uh, If you're a student, you know we have um, seasons of intentional preparations for exams. Uh, And students actually spend years in preparation to qualify themselves with knowledge and skills to be able to do the job that they're hoping to do and fulfil their career goals. Uh, Things like when you go for a job interview, you've usually got to prepare for that. And and you might have other examples from your life where you've had a concerted season of preparation for something important. But when we think about our relationship with God, our worship, and the calling that God has placed on our lives. Do we prepare ourselves? Do we ready ourselves to encounter the presence of God? 
Do we set ourselves apart for the glory of God by the way that we go about our lives? Do we commit and devote ourselves to the holy calling given to us by our holy God? Because I want to tell you this morning that God has something more for you, for us, something greater, something extraordinary. But he needs to know you're serious. He needs to know that you're in. So over this term, we've been journeying with the Israelites from their deliverance out of Egypt, through the Red Sea and the desert, towards the Promised Land. And we've seen God revealing himself as a powerful and mighty saviour, far above earthly kings and rulers, who's also the Lord over creation as he parts seas and as he brings water, manna and quail to sustain the Israelites. He's also revealing himself as a relational and trustworthy God who desires intimacy and who wants the, what is best and right for his people. So Exodus 19, which we're looking at today, is actually a hinge passage in the book of Exodus. It summarises what God has done and also what he's about to do. Because immediately after this chapter, God gives the Ten Commandments and the law. So this chapter is really important. To set the scene, the Israelites have come to the foot of Mount Sinai at Horeb and have set up camp there. Now, this is a familiar place for Moses. It's the place where God met him in the burning bush. And it's also the place that signifies the fulfilling of God's promise to Moses when he first called him. Back in Exodus 3 verse 12, God said to Moses, I will be with you and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So God had brought them all to worship on his holy mountain. He had shown his people the sign and he had come good on his promise. And here at the foot of Mount Sinai, they'll remain for the rest of this story in Exodus. So in chapter 19, we're poised at the foot of this mountain, expectant about what's going to happen next. And in verse 10 of Exodus 19, God says to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So the people are given the instruction to prepare themselves to encounter the presence of God. Now, a lot of people and Christians today would probably have a casual approach to the presence of God. We often emphasize the nearness of God and that he is approachable, that we are to come confidently into his presence because Jesus has made the way for us to draw near, um, as the letter to the Hebrews tells us. And we talk also a lot about God with us. Uh, and this year especially, we've been talking a lot about the Holy Spirit and his dwelling within us. So we often emphasise what's known theologically as the imminence of God, that God is near. But in this part of Exodus, not only is God going to come near, as we'll see, but he's also going to reveal almost like the complete opposite aspect of his presence, his transcendence. God's going to reveal the complete otherness of himself. Or as Matt Redmond describes it, he says, um, he calls it the set-apartness of God. 
that he is holy through and through and completely off the charts of anything that we could ever fathom or imagine. See, God is completely unlike us. In 1 Timothy 6.16, it says, God alone is immortal and he lives in unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. And in Isaiah 46 verse 9, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And if we read a few verses ahead from verse 16, we read that as God came down the mountain, this is pretty amazing, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. It would have been like standing at the bottom of a volcano that was erupting, like terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And we read that if the people tried to get too close, even by approaching, touching even the bottom of the mountain, there would be dire consequences for them that would cost them their life. So in order for the people to be in the proximity of God's holy presence, God needed them to be consecrated. God needed them to be consecrated. So what does this word consecrate mean? We're given a couple of hints here in this chapter. They're to wash their clothes as an expression of being cleansed and purified on the inside. Perhaps that involved personal confession and repentance of sin. And they are to be ready. Later in this chapter, Moses tells them to abstain from sex as a way of readying themselves to meet with God. So this was essentially an act of fasting as an expression of devotion, first and foremost to him. Consecration then meant the preparation of one's heart and soul to be spiritually engaged, spiritually open, spiritually ready. And it meant taking God absolutely seriously and re-engaging a rightful reverence of heart towards him. And consecration also involved dedicating or committing something or someone to a holy role or purpose. If someone was consecrated, they were set apart for something. And so what I want to suggest today, that at the core of this chapter, God wanted his people to be set apart for worship. Consecrated for worship. Set apart to be a people who love God with their whole heart and with their whole lives. Because not only did they need to be consecrated to be able to be near God's fearful presence, but they needed to be consecrated for something more than that as well. There was more to their worship that God was revealing them, revealing to them. So let's look back at verses 3 to 6 of chapter 19. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, 
how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. There's so much to unpack in these verses, but essentially God was renewing the covenant with his people. And God wanted his people to be consecrated, to be covenant people. And these verses summarize and describe this covenant relationship and even God's deepest desires for his people, the very reason for their and our salvation. And so I think actually in these verses is a complete summary of the gospel. And this is why, um, interestingly enough, these verses are often described as the heart of the Old Testament. So let's look at verse 4. This is God's salvation of his people and the way that he has been faithful to the covenant. He saved them from slavery in Egypt. He carried them on eagles' wings and he brought them to himself. This is a summary of his sovereign grace. Notice it's all his work. He brought them out. He lifted them up. He drew them close. It was by his initiative and through his enablement. When we think back on our salvation, this is exactly what God has done for us. He chose to save us. He called us. He orchestrated our salvation and he enabled it. But there's more to this relationship than God's unbreakable promise of love for his people. Just like the Israelites, we've been delivered for a reason. And our salvation then requires a response. Why? Because this relationship isn't a one-way relationship. This is a two-way relationship, a mutual relationship. And what is God calling his people to? Verse 5 says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. God's saying, I've done this, now you do that. So our side of the covenant involves full obedience and devotion to God as his people. So we are set apart through God's salvation to be a holy people. Some people trip up on why obedience is a necessary part of our worship. But if we truly appreciate what God has saved us from, from sin, disordered love, corruption and so on, and what he has saved us to, a life which glorifies him and satisfies our souls in every respect, then obedience is simply an extension of the love that we want to express in response to that salvation. Jesus himself said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And in 1 John 2, the Apostle John says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And then in verse 5, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in him. So through obedience, our love for God is made complete. But there's also another way to look at it. God's desire for our obedience, our holiness, if you like, 
is also to display God's holiness, God's perfections, God's righteousness and justice to the world. In verse 6, God says, You will be for me a holy nation. A nation that points to the moral and ethical perfection of God and his will. A nation that serves as a beacon of justice, truth, goodness and beauty in the world. And through that glorifies God. We don't often think of our holiness and godliness as a service to the world, do we? Uh, One of the commentaries I read put it this way. The way we serve is by leading holy lives. Because the way we live, the way we live is part of God's plan for saving the world. And this is a high calling, isn't it? And we know that, we actually know that Israel wasn't able to uh, meet this condition of the covenant. And it wasn't until Christ came that this condition could be met. So being unstained by sin, Jesus offered full obedience on our behalf. So in 1 Corinthians 6.11, it tells us that we've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So now because of Christ, we can be and we are the holy people of God in the world, just like Jerome said before. Our holiness is both now and the future. We are holy and we are being made holy. Timothy, in his second letter, puts it this way. Oh no, have I got it? No, I haven't got it. <laughs> um, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Oh, it is there. Um, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. And finally, God wanted his people to be set apart to serve him as a kingdom of priests, which we see in verse 6. Now, this is the only time this phrase, kingdom of priests, is used in the Old Testament. Uh, Last week, Jerome encouraged us to think more about our role as God's prophets in the world. And here this week, the emphasis is on our role as priests in the world. But what does this kingdom of priests thing mean? Well, what do priests do? They represent God to the people, and they represent the people to God. And they act as mediators of God's grace to the world. The Apostle Peter picks up this language in the New Testament and applies it directly to the church. He says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So every single person in the church... Every single one of you is called to serve and worship God and represent God in the world. We call this the priesthood of all believers. We've been saved for God's glory, saved to glorify him by declaring his praises with all of our hearts and with all of our lives. I love what John Piper says. He says, the exaltation of God's glory is the goal of our salvation. 
It's what we've been saved to do. We are a set-apart people, set apart to worship God and glorify him in the world. Mm. So as I draw this message to a close, uh, and as we think about this incredible calling that God wants us to step up into, or keep stepping up in, I think that this is an opportune season to be thinking about how God wants, um, how God wants us to prepare ourselves and ready ourselves to be a people set apart for worship. As we emerge from lockdown and approach Advent as a season of preparation for the coming of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas, and even as we think about what God might be asking of us for next year, this is an opportune time to reflect with God about how he wants us to prepare ourselves for what he's got ahead for us. Perhaps a big part of how we consecrate ourselves at this time is by intentionally re-establishing rhythms of worship in our lives. Rhythms that keep God at the centre of all we do. Rhythms that orient our lives around God. Rhythms of prayer, of reading God's word, of praise and thanksgiving, of silence and rest. Perhaps we could also ready ourselves by thinking about and planning for how we could include expressions of service in our lives. You know, as we look to next year, there are definitely opportunities to serve in our ministries here at St Mark's, whether it's in ministry to children, families or young people, or music or worship ministry, or in the missional spaces in our community. We're going to need people to serve in these spaces. So let's take this time to reflect on what God is calling us to and then thinking about how we can be intentional in readying ourselves to serve him in that way. Or maybe today is an opportunity for you to recommit your life to God and to say, God, I want you to be my all in all and I'm willing to live for you with my whole life. Perhaps the Spirit is prompting you to maybe confess that sin and make that decision today to turn away from that with intentional repentance. And that might even involve sharing with someone who can support you and help keep you accountable. Take that opportunity today. Friends, God has set us apart for worship. Just like Lauren Parker, who set herself apart for her sport. We've been set apart for a life of worship. There is a future of purpose and divine destiny that God wants to unfold for us. And like those athletes, preparation is everything. Today, let's take this seriously. Let's say, yes, God, we're in and consecrate ourselves to him once again.